There's so many places our students could be, but they choose to be here. They choose to serve God and worship Him, and we appreciate them so very much, as we do the rest of our worship team. Hey, take out your copy of God's Word. Join me this morning in the book of Psalms, Old Testament book of Psalms. If you do not have a Bible with you this morning, if you don't own one, there's one there in the pew back in front of you. If you don't own one, that's our gift to you. We want you to have that, use it. Uh, We're going to be on page 395 in that pew Bible this morning. Welcome. Glad you guys are here. Is everybody doing well today? Good, good, good. Welcome those that are joining us online, uh, a group that grows every week uh, watching us online or listening to our podcast, and we are blessed that people are joining us to study God's truth and His Word. I'm wondering how many of you went home with a headache last Sunday as I threw so much information out at you, or at least you went home with a hand cramp trying to write down all of that information about worldviews last week. I pray that you weren't overwhelmed by the topic. In fact, I pray that your interest was piqued to think about how we think about the world and how as Christians we can approach the world from a biblical worldview and how we can interact with those who approach the world from a very different worldview. Just as a quick reminder, we're in a series of messages talking about what a worldview is and how to have a biblical worldview. And a worldview is just the lens by which people look at the world. It is how we understand the world, it is how we interpret the world, and it is how we live then within that world. A worldview leads to our beliefs, and our beliefs lead to our values, and our values lead to our actions. The formation of one's worldview really revolve around three big questions. Is there a God, and if so, what is He like? What is the nature and origin of the universe, and what is the nature and origin of man? Worldviews all try to answer those questions. Is there a God? What is He like? Where did nature and human history come from, and and who are men? What is mankind? Did any of you, I'm just curious, have an experience this week where you recognized a different worldview other than your own? Maybe in a movie or a television show or a conversation you had with somebody and you went, oh, wait a minute, they're looking at life from a different lens than I am. Ryan and I were driving in, my son Ryan and I were driving in our car um, early Monday morning up South Del Mabry Highway and we saw a marquee on the side of a car repair shop that said, all that you will ever need is already inside of you. All that you will ever need is already inside of you. Now, that's a very clever little statement, but the question is, is it true? Is everything that I'm ever going to need already within me? I I think it's a nice sentiment, but as I do some self-examination, as I look in my own life, as I look in my own heart, I find quickly that everything I need is not in here. Because when I look in here, it's a scary thing. Because I have a... Man, apart from Christ, I have a sinful, fallen heart. And apart from Christ, I'm one of the selfish people I know. And everything that I need in this world, I promise you, is not already here. Now, I suppose your answer to that question really depends on your understanding of who man is. And whether you believe that everything is already in that you already need really depends on your view of God and of sin and of eternity. But I'm here to tell you that the simple truth is that I have zero shot at figuring out who I am if I haven't figured out who God is. We cannot discern who mankind is apart from understanding who God is. 
two huge questions that any worldview must answer. Who is God? Who am I? A.W. Tozer famously said that what we believe about God is the single most important thing about us. That what we understand about God defines everything else about us. And you remember that a worldview leads to belief, belief leads to value, and value leads to action. So if I believe that there is a God, and what I believe about that God changes everything about what I believe. So if that God is a one true God, a creator God, a sovereign God, who is also a loving and caring and compassionate and gracious God, who has given me a set of rules and regulations to live by in order to live well and to glorify him, then that's my beliefs. And then everything I value, what is important to me, is going to base off of those beliefs. And then my actions are going to flow out of what I believe to be important. A biblical worldview doesn't go very far without running into God. In fact, a biblical worldview must begin with God. That's where the Bible begins. We don't have to go but three words into the Bible to find God. In the beginning, God. The Bible does not intend to prove God's existence. It's not its point to prove God's existence. It assumes God's existence. It shows us God's existence. But what about those who would reject the truth of the Bible? What about those who have a different world lens and says there is no God? How might we, who believe that there is one true God, interact with somebody who doesn't have that worldview? How do we interact with somebody who would reject when we say this is truth, this word of God is his truth, when we hold that as an absolute truth claim, they reject it? How can we have a conversation with somebody about God who rejects God and rejects His truth. How should, we how should we discuss the existence and nature of God with them? Last week we looked at Paul, the apostle, in Acts chapter 17 as he went to the city of Athens. And in the synagogue he reasoned from the Scriptures with those who had a similar worldview, but when he was in the marketplace and when he went to the Oropagus, the place where the philosophers all got together to discuss things, he didn't go to the Scriptures he started in a very different place. He started with something that he had in common with everybody that he was talking with. He started with creation, and from there he built his argument for who God is. It was a common connection point. It's the same common connection point that we have with all humanity today. God has created all things. He has created each one of us with great value and great worth. But how do we talk to somebody who doesn't believe there's a God? And especially, how do we talk to somebody who would say, I don't care what your Bible says, I really don't believe there's a God? What is a common connection point? For the proof of God apart from His revelation of Himself in Scripture. Some would say that there's something known as the teleological argument for God's existence. This is a fancy word, means the end or the ending. And a teleological argument for God just simply says that existence of order and design in the universe proves that there is a God. That when you look at our universe and how vast it is, and yet how intricate it is, and when you look at the human body and all of its systems and how intricately designed it is, that that displays 
purposeful design that this world did not come into existence randomly, that because it is so ordered, because it is so intricately designed, there must be a designer behind it. Chaos does not lead to order. And the classical example of this is imagine you're walking, walking along Pasigrill Beach and you're seeing shells and you're seeing the waves roll in and on that beach you find a, a pocket watch. And you pick up that pocket watch and it's a beautiful pocket watch. You open that pocket watch up and it's got little cogs and little wheels that are spinning and turning and it's causing hands on the front to keep time in perfect measure. Your conclusion is not going to be that that happened randomly. Your conclusion is not going to be that that watch just out of the ooze of the ocean came together in that form. Somehow the shells in the ocean, somehow the materials in the ocean, somehow everything just happened to form into this perfectly delicate, precise piece of equipment. Your logical conclusion is what? Somebody designed that. Somebody made that. You extrapolate that out to the universe and you say, look at the universe. This isn't by chance. Look at the human body. It doesn't happen randomly. Therefore, there must be a designer. I suppose we can argue who that designer is, but at least it gets us to the conversation that says there must be someone who's done this. The other argument is a, what's known as a cosmological argument, cosmos meaning world, and this is just simply that the existence of the world proves God's existence. The cosmological argument would say that every effect has a cause, that everything that we see in our life, something caused it to happen. So this effect had a cause, this effect had a cause, this effect had a cause. Something happened in order for this to happen. And nature then, creation then, is either eternal or it had a cause. Either creation as we know it has always existed or something caused it to happen. It's known as the uncaused cause. Imagine a a row of dominoes. One domino falls, it knocks the next domino down, which knocks the next domino down, which knocks the next domino down, which knocks the next domino down. And we see it follow, and we can follow that trail all the way back to what? The first domino, and we go, what knocked the first domino down? In fact, what created the first domino to knock down the second domino? This is the cosmological argument for God's existence. We can trace everything back, but eventually, even science gets to the point where they go, oh, Is the question of God's existence merely an existential debate, or are there real consequences upon a human life? Are there real consequences upon a human life whether God exists or God does not exist? Because as the Bible suggests to us, it is futile for us to try to understand ourselves apart from understanding who God is. These two truths are inseparably linked together. 
A kindergarten teacher assigned her class the task of drawing anything they wanted to draw. She gave them crayons and markers and blank sheets of paper and said, you write down, you draw whatever you want to draw. And so the children anxiously started out, and a little boy was drawing a fire truck, and a little girl was drawing her house, another little boy was, was drawing a tree, and a little girl was drawing a flower. And then this one little boy was drawing this, this really interesting drawing, and, and, the, and the teacher walked up and said, sweetheart, what are you drawing? And the child said, I'm drawing God. And the teacher said, well, that's interesting because no one's ever seen God. We don't know what He's like. And the child thought for a moment and said, well, they will when I'm done. (laughs) That might sound strikingly similar to what Paul told the Athenian philosophers in Athens. They had idols to everyone, especially one little idol that says to an unknown God. And Paul said, well, you worship in ignorance. Let me introduce you to him. Now, listen, we we do not work from the imagination of a young boy. We don't even work from the combined wisdom of all mankind when we strive to know God. We work from God's revelation of Himself. God has shown us who He is. We don't have to imagine who He is. He shows us who He is both in His world and in His Word. And our text for this morning, Psalm chapter 8, shows us just that. If you're physically able and willing, would you stand with me as we read from God's Word And we answered these two big questions. Who is God and who is man? Psalm chapter 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you would care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the pass of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we don't come with the imagination of a young boy. We don't come with the combined wisdom of the world to try to figure out who you are. And Father, I praise you that we don't have to because you have shown us who you are. You reveal your existence. You reveal your greatness and your goodness in your creation in the world. And Father, we thank you for your word which has revealed it to us. We thank you that you sent Jesus Christ, the exact representation of you, God in the flesh, so that we would not have to wonder what God is like. We know what God is like because we have seen Jesus. And so, Father, help us to begin our quest of understanding who we are and how we should look at this world, not with ourselves, but with you. Father, let us start with our Creator, our Sovereign King. Father, we praise you because you're worthy today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So how many of you learned to pray this little prayer when you were young? God is great. God is good. 
Let us thank him for our food. By his hand we all are fed. Thank you, Lord, for daily bread. Many of us learn that around our dinner table with our parents. And such a profound truth that we find in such a simple little prayer. God is great and God is good. As we begin to try to understand who God is, there are two things we need to understand. God is great, and that great God, He is good. Psalm chapter 8, which we have read this morning, is a hymn of praise. It is bookended in verse 1 and verse 9 with this great great proclamation of praise. O Lord our God, O Lord our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God's majesty is seen through the lens of His creation. We begin to understand who God is through the vastness of His universe and through the dignity of mankind. Along with Psalm chapter 19 and Psalm 29 and Psalm 65 and Psalm 104 and Psalm 148, this psalm is a song that magnifies God because of His creation through his creation. The message of the psalm is simple. Creation is crying out to worship the creator. Creation is crying out to worship the creator. And so our questions this morning are this, two huge questions. What's God like? What's man like? Who is God? Who is man? Psalm 8 commands us to see that God is both great and God is good. He is great. Verse 1 declares He's great on the earth, and He's great above the heavens. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. The name of God refers more than just how we identify God. It's not just G-O-D. God's name is His character. It represents His nature. It encompasses all of His attributes. So when we talk about the name of God, we are talking about all that encompasses who God is. Thus, God commands that we should never take His name in vain. And David's address in verse 1 and his benediction in verse 9 is a statement of faith. O Lord, our Lord. He calls Him Lord twice. And as we read it in the English translations, we we miss a little bit, although it's accurate to say Lord and Lord, there are two different Hebrew words that are used here. The first is the word Yahweh, oh Yahweh. The second is Adonai, oh Yahweh are Adonai. Yahweh is the self-existent one. Adonai is the sovereign one. And so as he cries out to God, he says Yahweh and Adonai. Yahweh is God's given name of Himself. You may remember when He went to Moses and appeared to him in the burning bush, and He said, I want you to go back to Egypt, I want you to deliver my children out of slavery, and Moses asked him, he said, they may not believe me, they don't listen to me, who should I tell them sent me? And at that point, God said, you tell them that the I am that I am sent you. My name is I am that I am. It is my self-existent name. I have always been. I am an eternal God. You go tell them that the self-existent eternal God is the one who sent you. 
And this name, Yahweh, was so holy and revered by the Israelites that they would not utter the name. They would not say it out loud. When they wrote it, they would eliminate the the vowels so that they wouldn't mispronounce it and, and unknowingly offend God or write it wrongly and unknowingly offend God. So they wouldn't say Yahweh. They would use the name Adonai, which means master. It means the one who has the highest authority. And so David, even as he begins this psalm, is literally saying, Oh, Yahweh, our Adonai. Oh, eternal, self-existing God, you are our master. Adds a little more punch than, Oh, Lord, our Lord. Now, that's a statement of faith. It's a grand statement of who God is. God, you have always been. God, you are self-existent. And God, you're sovereign. You're in charge. But notice he says, O Lord, our Lord. It's very personal. This sovereign, self-existent, eternal God is our God. But he doesn't stop there. He says, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David acknowledges that this God is the God of the nation of Israel, but he says he's not only the God of the nation of Israel. He is God over all the earth. And the name of God, his character, is majestic over all the earth. His majesty is displayed throughout his universe. His majesty is displayed for all to see on the whole earth. And God is so great and God is so glorious that he cannot be confined. He cannot be contained. In fact, God's glory can't even contain by the earth. David says, who have displayed your splendor not only on the earth, but above the heavens. After Solomon built a temple for God, he prayed a prayer of dedication in 1 Kings chapter 8, and wise King Solomon said this, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I built you. Solomon said, I built a house to represent your presence, but you don't live in that house. You're far too big to live in that house. The heavens can't contain the majesty of God. And you may remember Paul's argument with the Athenian philosophers. He said, you guys have built idols and you've built little shelters for your gods, but does it make any sense to you that the God who created you needs you to build a house for him? Does it make any sense that the one creator, true God who created all men needs anything from your hands? He is too big. He is too great. He is too glorious to be contained by the things of this earth. This earth itself isn't big enough to contain the glory of God. His heavens display His glory. So God is great. He's great on the earth. He's great above the heavens. But listen, he's also great against all opposition. Verse 2 is kind of interesting. Isn't it interesting that this sovereign, self-existing God is not universally loved by his creation? You would think that everyone would reach out to this God and love this God, but apparently there are those who don't. Because in verse 2, it talks about enemies. It talks about foes. And in verse 2, it says, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful see. Who are God's enemies? Who in the world would go against God and His glory and His majesty? This sovereign, self-existing God, who would fight against Him? 
Well, clearly we know that Satan and his fallen demonic horde fight against him. They want to steal the glory that rightly belongs to God. But this could also be talking about humankind. This could also be talking about men and women who are foolish enough to think that they're strong enough, mighty enough, and powerful enough to overthrow God from His rightful place in the universe and in their lives. But notice how God defeats them. God defeats them not with a mighty army. He doesn't defeat them with weapons of great power or mass destruction. No, God defeats His enemies by establishing strength in infants and nursing babies. Through the weak, the vulnerable, the helpless, God defeats His enemies and He is glorified. God is so big and so great and so massive that there is no enemy that goes against Him that is a threat to Him. He doesn't have to raise up a huge army. The verse may sound familiar because Jesus quoted it on the day that He rode in to Jerusalem. The triumphal entry, as we call it, as he rode in on the foal of a donkey, and they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're worshiping him as the Messiah. And the religious leaders of the day said, Jesus, you've got to tell these children to be quiet. And Jesus quotes this verse, and he says, have you never read Psalm chapter 8, verse 2? Have you never read this? That I will be praised out of the mouth of children and infants. And this is how God's work. He displays His strength through our weakness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, but God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose that which is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose that which is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Now, was David literally talking about infants and babies? Or maybe metaphorically, he was talking about the weak and the vulnerable and the utterly dependent. Because at the end of the day, we're all just a bunch of babies. We're all just a bunch of spiritual babies who are completely and utterly dependent upon God. And in order to discover our identity, it is directly related to our ability to acknowledge that compared to God, I'm a nobody. Compared to God, I'm tiny. Compared to God, I'm frail. Compared to God, I'm feeble. Compared to God, I am helpless. Now, this challenges the worldview that says man is strong. This challenges the worldview that says we don't need God. We're so smart, we've evolved beyond a need for God. This flies in the face of the worldview that says man is significant and powerful and God does not exist. The point, when we get to the point where we acknowledge that we're weak, we will begin to understand that we need God. And when we get to that point, we will begin to understand how great God is. But we'll also begin to understand how good God is. God is great on the earth. God is great above the heavens. God is great as he goes against his foes. And verse 3, God is great as he is astride the greatness of his universe. Verse 3 begins to transition David's thoughts from above to what he sees around. 
He transitions his thoughts from God to himself, but even as he does, the context is still God's greatness. David begins to be looking at God, and as he looks at God, he then begins to look at himself. But even as he looks at himself, the context is still, where am I in the context of who God is? And he makes the one first-person statement that he makes in this whole thing right here in verse 3. He says, who, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, when I stop and I think about how awesome you are, how great you are, how big you are, when I look at your moon and your stars and your universe, David is talking about God's transcendence. That word means that God is above everything, that he is greater than his creation. He looks at God and he says, David, God, you are, you are beyond my comprehension. David's looking up at the heavens. You remember David was a little shepherd boy, spent many nights out in the fields, looking up at the stars unfaded by modern lights, just looking up in the galaxies, just looking up at the stars. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens are declaring the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And David is looking up in the stars. He's looking up at the universe, and he's going, what kind of God could create this? How awesome must this God be? And notice what he calls it, your heaven. Because he recognizes that it belonged to God, and it belonged to God because God created it. He put the heavens in place. He put the stars where they were supposed to be. He created the planets. And notice this, when he did so, he didn't have to work hard in doing it. He didn't have to strain in order to do it. He didn't have to put his back into it. He says, when I consider the work of your fingers, God, you created all of this. And when you did it, it wasn't hard for you. Man, you just swiggled a little finger and there it was. I cannot, I, I've got to digress for a second. I cannot help but think of Poe the panda in, in, in Kung Fu Panda. You know what I'm about to say, right? Skadoosh. That's, that's all it was. Some of you are completely lost right now, but it's okay. <laughs> God just went, Doink. that's all it was. And David is looking at this, and he did not have the knowledge that we have today. He was only looking at what he could see with his own eyes. He didn't have satellites. He didn't have telescopes. He didn't have space stations. He didn't know what the Milky Way was, what giant stars were. He had no clue what a black hole was. And yet he looked at it and goes, wow, look what you have created. Your existence is not random. This universe is not just an explosion of gases. God, you have created this. You set the moon and the stars and the planets and the galaxies in their place. Isn't it ironic that the more we learn about our universe and how big it is and how many galaxies there are out there, that there are more and more people using that as an excuse to say that there can't possibly be a God? Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, Psalm 145. The shepherd king David is out in the field at night considering the stars and the sky, and not only did he conclude that God is great, he also came to this understanding, this great God is a good God. He's considered the transcendence of God, but now he begins to think about the imminence of God, the closeness of God. Verse 4, as he looks at the universe, he says, hold up, time out. 
in the vast scheme of things, as this universe is so great and you are transcendent above this universe, what is man that you're mindful of him? What's the son of man that you would even think about him or care about him? The universe is so vast and I'm so small, David thought. The earth is so huge and I'm so tiny. In the big scheme of things, who am I? To a self-existent, sovereign God, do you ever even think about me? Little me? Little less care about me? Can you see David's problem? He says, who is the son of man that you would think about him? Son of man is a term for man that just emphasizes our frailty, our humanity. And the answer to this question, of course, is if we remove God out of the equation, nothing. In the view of all of this universe, who is man? Take God out of the equation and the answer is not much. We're, we're, we're just another mammal living on a small rock in the middle of a vast universe. From the perspective of the godless, this vast universe that we are just, we're smaller than an ant. We're just tiny. We're nothing special. Just the random products of a random universe. Maybe slightly further evolved than other species around us. We're just a little bit higher than the animals. If you take God out of the equation, that's what you get with hum human beings. We're just cells and bones that somehow came together randomly. No better than anything else. But you can't take God out of the equation and get the right answer. You can never remove God from the equation and get the right answer because the wrong answer is also the right answer because while we may not be much, we get a completely different answer when we start to think about this great God is not only a great God, but He's a good God. Let me show you what I mean, verses 4 through 8. He's good because He created mankind. Verse 5 begins with the word, yet. God, you created all this with your little finger. You created the stars. I don't even know how many there are. There are just so many out there. And yet, what is man that you're mindful of him? Yet, you made me. You created me. You created us. Consider what David's thinking about here for a minute. He's saying the same God who created all this, he himself made us. He himself created us. He created man. With his own hand, the psalmist tells us, that he knit us together in his mother's womb. With his own hand, he formed Adam, and he formed Eve, and he breathed the breath of life into them, and he gave them his own image. He created them in his image. He gave them the capacity to reason. He gave them a soul. He created them to have a relationship with him. He created them unique above all of the other creation. Human beings did not climb out of a primordial ooze. God made us in his image. How do I know God's good? Because God created us. I also know God is good because He crowned us. Verse 5, you made Him a little lower than, the God, than God. Some of your translations may say He made Him a little lower than the angels or the heavenly beings. But the word there is Elohim. It's the word for God. And when God created man, He didn't make us a little bit better than the birds in the air. He didn't make us a little bit better than the beasts of the field. No, He made us a little bit lower than Himself. And He gave us His image. He created us, and then He crowned us with glory and with majesty. Verse 5, 
Those are words that are used to ascribe to God. And when He gave us His image, we reflect His glory, His majesty. Doesn't mean that we're little gods, but rather that we reflect the image of our Creator. And mankind has infinite worth. Every single human being has complete worth because God created them in His image. Everyone, born and unborn, healthy and sick, young and old, every human being has dignity and worth because God created them and God crowned them. As we go through this series, that is a paramount important truth as we talk about such, such topics as personal identity as we discuss topics such as abortion and euthanasia. When we eliminate God, then man is just nothing more than just another animal and just a bunch of cells and amoebas and things floating together. And it's easy to say, it's no big deal. But when we realize that every human being has dignity because God knit them together with his own hands and they have worth because God created them and God crowned them but there's even more in verses 6 and 7. He said, you made him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put things under his feet, all things, all sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the path of the sea. God created man in his image, made him a little lower than God, and commanded man to rule over the world, the earth, to have dominion over all things. I love how Pastor H.B. Charles put it. He said, God did not create man to reside on earth. God created man to preside on earth. We are not the top dog on earth because of some act of survival of the fittest. We are there because that is how God has created us and God has commanded us. God is good because he creates us. God is good because he has crowned us. And God is good because He cares for us. This question should seek us to ask, if mankind has been given dominion over all of creation, then why don't we actually practice it? Why don't we actually have it? Why is it that some animals are afraid of us, and why is it that some animals try to eat us? Why is it that we don't have control over the weather and and all this. If, if we have dominion over all things, then why don't we right now have dominion over all things? We should be asking this question. Why does creation rise up against us? And honestly, David doesn't seek to answer that question here in Psalm 8. But of course, the answer is that creation has been corrupted. That man has sinned and creation has been cursed. And as we look at a biblical worldview, we're going to unpack that. We're going to see that, how that happens in Genesis chapter 3 and moving forward. But although we were created in the image of God and crowned with His glory, we are a sinful and fallen people. Adam rebelled and plunged humanity into sin, and now we need someone to intervene on our behalf. Our great God is a good God because He created us. Our great God is a good God because He crowned us. But I want you to hear this. Our great God is a good God because He cares for us. 
He cares so much that He intervened on our behalf. He sent His own Son to die for us. Let me just challenge you um, this week. Go to Hebrews chapter 2 and read Hebrews chapter 2 because Hebrews chapter 2 is God's commentary on Psalm 8. It is God's explanation of Psalm 8. It is the author of Hebrews applying Psalm 8 to Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who became a little bit lower and sacrificed himself in our place. Read Hebrews chapter 2. We don't have time to do it together this morning. God is a transcendent God. He's above all things. But God's also an imminent God. He is close. And Psalm 8 doesn't talk about mankind in order to brag on mankind. Psalm 8 talks about mankind in order to boast about God, which is why it begins with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And that's why it ends with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so as we develop a worldview, as we begin to understand our worldview, as we begin to wrestle with this question of who are we, we first have to ask the question, who is God? What is God like? And God reveals Himself to us. He does so in His world, and He does so in His Word. Who is God? He is our Lord. He is the self-existent, eternal, transcendent Creator who created all things with His Word, one little finger, and all of this came into place. He is a transcendent God. He is a good God. He is an imminent God who is close. He is our eternal, self-existent God who loves us and cares for us. He has created us. He has crowned us. He cares for us. And oh, by the way, He's coming back for us. So as we consider ourselves in light of God's vast creation, I wonder if you've ever asked yourself, who am I? Does anybody ever care about me? Is there anybody in the world who cares about me? Has anybody ever thought about me? Does anybody think about me? And I want you to know today, if you've ever been in that place, that there is someone who thinks about you more than you can possibly imagine, who cares about you more than you can possibly imagine, and his name is Yahweh. His name is Adonai. He is the one who has created you. He is the one who crowned you with his image and gave you infinite worth. He is the one who cares for you enough to send his son to die for you. He is the one who cares enough to want to spend eternity with you and come back for you. Psalm 134, the psalmist says, How vast are your thoughts of me, O Lord? If I should count them, they would outnumber the sands on the beach. Does anybody care about you? You bet they do. His name is God. Who is God? He's great. He's good. Who are you? You're His creation. Crowned with His glory and majesty, you are the image bearer of God. And He cares so much that even though we have sinned, He sent His Son to take our place. And He's coming back again. That'll change the way you look at the world. 
Let's pray together. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, when we look at your heavens, when we look at your stars and the galaxies, we are blown away. And the only logical conclusion to that is that there is an uncaused cause. There is a designer who has created all of this. And Father, you are that creator. You are the uncaused cause. You are our eternal, self-existing God. And Father, we praise you for that. And Father, we praise you that you're not only a great God who displays yourself on earth and in your heavens, you display yourself in our lives when we come to realize that we're weak and feeble and we need you. And when we cry out for you, you display your glory in our lives. Father, thank you for being a great God, but thank you for being a good God. Father, a God who has created us in your image. We're not a little bit better than the animals that are walking around on the earth. We are just a little lower than you. And God, you have crowned us with your image, your glory and your majesty. Each person here is worthy of dignity because of your name stamp on them, because of your fingerprints all over their lives. Father, every human life is worthy of dignity because you created us and you crowned us. But Father, you also care for us because in our own sin, we've rebelled against you. Your creation is now cursed and fallen, but you didn't leave us in that state you intervene by sending your own son, Jesus Christ, the son of man, to die in our place. Father, you care that much about us. You created us for eternity to be with you. And Father, you're coming once again. Lord, I pray that if anyone here today doesn't understand who they are in light of you, that today they've just been confronted by truth, that they're not just a collection of cells they're not just another animal or mammal walking around the face of the earth. No, they are your creation and you love them. Father, I pray that they would find their worth not in what this world says about them, but what you say about them. And Father, I pray if anyone's never trusted in you and turned to you and said, Father, I am weak, I need help, that today would be the day that they would trust in you. Father, some of us just need to look up at the night sky and just praise you. Some of us just need to look at our fingerprints or the, the eyelashes of an infant and just praise you because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. The intricacies of your creation cry out to worship you. And so, Father, from the mouths of infants and babes, let us proclaim your name. You are worthy. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Time of commitment this morning, the time of invitation is just what I've prayed. If you've ever wondered, who am I? Does anybody care about me? I want to introduce you to God who cares about you more than you could possibly fathom. I want to introduce you to my friend named Jesus. And as we stand and sing in a minute, if, you, if you've never understood how much God loves you, I'd love for you to come forward and just say, Pastor, can you tell me more about this guy named Jesus?
I'd, I'd love to spend some time with you doing that. If you just want to come and, and, and kneel at this altar and just praise God because of how great and good he is, you've just been confronted with that truth in Scripture today, then do that. If you want to just stay where you are and raise your hand and do it. If while we're singing, you just want to stand there and not sing and just soak it in a little bit more, then you do that. But you respond as God's Holy Spirit leads you. Last Sunday night, we had our first steps course. We had almost 25 people there. So far, we've had 16 people from that 25 who have united with our church. And some of them are going to be coming down this morning and just standing up in the front so we can celebrate with them as they've united with us. And so as we're standing and we're singing, that group's going to be coming down. So there's going to be a whole bunch of folks moving this direction. So if you want to talk about Christ, you come on down. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. We give you all the glory because you are worthy. Lord, bless this time of invitation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's sing. You respond as God's Holy Spirit leads you.